We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela Dei Mater Alma Atve Semper Virgo Felix Semporta Everybody, I wanted to do a uh, little show on uh, St. Peter of Verona, St. Peter the Martyr. Most people probably have no idea who he is. Uh, definitely, uh, well, just most people in general do not know who he is. Um, his cult was huge back in the day. I'll get into some of the details. He has a, he was huge in childbirth. Nobody really knows that one. I was amazed on how, how, uh, how much people went to him. But obviously, uh, uh, headaches is another one. I you see the sword in his head. This photo that you see right now, I actually have hanging up behind me. Above the one you see right there, the uh, altarpiece for the shark, uh, the Carthusian martyrs, is I got that same photo up framed, and I have the palm of Saint Peter Martyr behind the photo. And the, uh, if you don't know about the palm, it's on the sensefidelium.com website. Uh, it helps protect the house against demonic oppression and storms. It controls the weather. It literally, every time there's a storm, sure as anything, sure as sure as death taxes and uh, like it used to be the New York Yankees, but as sure as death and taxes, uh, every time we see a red blob come towards us, it goes away. It either breaks away, forms again on the other side. Hurricanes I've seen turn bright. When I was in Denver, Colorado, we never had any hail problem. I gave it to one lady uh, at a catechetical conference, and she recognized me two years later, comes up to me and says, hey, you remember that palm you gave me? I was the only house in the neighborhood that didn't need a new roof because out there you get renter's insurance for hell uh, or hell insurance because of the problem because you, you usually get new roofs. I mean, people, it's not uncommon to hear about softball sized hell destroying the house and all that. But she was the only one in the neighborhood that didn't need it because she had that palm. Um, and uh, like I said, uh, here I remember being back in Charlotte, there was a hurricane that came. A friend of mine, they ended up plant, planting it around the parish, actually, St. Anne's here. It gives it away. They do the blessing every year as a home kit, and they tell people what to do as well. And again, it was a cat. I think it was a Category Four a couple of years ago, and it was the eye was supposed to come over to Charlotte, and at the last moment, it made a right hand turn, and we got a drizzle. Apparently, the kid, their kids were upset. <laughs> they were they were excited for this big storm. Uh, by the first time I ever heard of this, uh, the first time I got the palms blessed, I had this. I remember asking Father Smith down at Prince of Peace and Greer about it. He was excited about it. I got this whole big box from after Palm Sunday. Huge, you know, four-foot box of palms. And he did a blessing. He said, man, that was cool. Okay, thanks thanks for doing it. Anyways, uh, go outside. There's a tornado warning. Literally, I mean, it's black as night coming towards us. And uh, so I hand the, palm to, hand the palms to some friends of mine, tell them what to do with it. The next day, I'm in Sparburg at St. Paul's for Mass, and uh, I hear people who didn't know what didn't know about what I did the day before. Uh, I heard him say, "Man, it was like that storm jumped over us." Because a buddy of mine, he lives in uh, 
Campobello, which is on this, it was like Greer, Sparbury, and then Campobello, and then trying another city. And there was a tornado here, and there was a tornado there in between, got a drizzle. And he said he has a big farm. And he said, yeah, we just got a little drizzle out of that whole thing. And yeah, so people were thinking, were saying, man, it's like that storm just jumped over us. And there's a reason to that. He controlled the weather in one situation. And I'll, I'll read an account of that story, too. There's some cool stuff from him that you may not know. And uh, uh, it's just it's one of those things I always like promoting him. I got some prayer cards made up. I'll be at the Charlotte conference in a couple months, next month. And I already have some. I gave, I gave a lot away in Raleigh. It was actually the day of his feast. The Raleigh diocese had a conference on his feast day. And they didn't know about it because it was, you know, he got removed off the calendar. And uh, so I gave away prayer cards. The only ones, I think it's the only ones made in English. And I had some photos made up. I didn't bring any to Palms. But I, I linked on the prayer card the, the prayer to the palms so that people can get their priest to bless it for them. You don't have to take all mine. You can get your own. <laughs> but uh, here's a, from the book uh, The Martyred Inquisitor by Donald Prudlow. Uh, fantastic book. He did, I think it's the only book in English on him. And it combines a ton. There's a great little research that he did. And it's hard to find this. I, hopefully it will get back reprinted. Uh, but I mean, I just ate this book up because I'm a fan of uh, Peter since I since I started hearing. It's the sermons, hearing the stuff. I don't like listening to the drama stuff. I, this stuff I like hearing. Like, who is this? This is amazing. Uh, but anyway, the origins of Peter Martyr. This is the append uh, the appendix version. Just it's all the way in the back. All the other stuffs on in the front. Uh, Blessed Peter Martyr of the Order of Friars Preachers. From the province of Lombardy, born in Verona, before birth, drew away from his heretical parents so that, just as light from darkness, arose from among thorns a flower taken from briars, he might shine more greatly in the cloister, that he might shine most brilliantly in the heavens. Though greatly blinded by his parents through air, a shining preacher arose. From illness of mind and corruption of body, virginal glory appears. From thorns pruned from eternal flames, a celebrated martyr ascends. And although nature would teach the son of these parents to be formed by learning, and necessity would compel the boy, nevertheless he saved the world from errors to which he himself was immune. Because neither deceitful flatteries, nor impending danger, nor frequent floggings by disputations with the heretics could he be led or driven to their influence for any amount of time. Already he seemed to understand that he who touches tar will be stained by it, and that bad conversation perverts good morals. For because nature governs in man and animals, man abhors the sight of a serpent and the lamb detests the sight of the wolf. So did nature let him know of their dangerous animosity. Good character instructed this boy by means of a heavenly anointing, so that he would shun that island of poisonous serpents and wild wolves, though concealed in sheep's clothing, so that he would discern his enemies and shun their comforts. When about the age of seven, he was returning from school where he was receiving his first lessons. With his heretical uncle, a diabolical trap was set. His uncle asked what he learned in school. He responded that he had learned the symbol of faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
and in all succession until it was completed. The uncle, incensed at this profession like a wild fighter, sought to divert the boy. It was not God, he claimed, but rather the devil who is confessed to be the creator of these visible things. By heretical authorities, he tried to convince the boy of his error, since the uncle was a patron of faithlessness. Nevertheless, nothing was able to prevail upon the boy, who constantly affirmed that what he read and what was written he himself wanted to believe and to hold. That seductor of souls and tool of the devil considered this and related every detail carefully to his father so that his utterances would be recounted in full. He attempted with all means at his disposal to get the father to remove literal Peter from school. For I fear, he said, that as soon as literal Peter will be better educated, he will make a compact with that harlot the Roman church, and in such a way he will destroy our faith. And this he did not keep to himself, but just like a second Caiaphas, unaware of the future, he prophesied that the perfidy of heretics would be destroyed by blessed Peter. But because it was not advice in conformity to the will of the Lord, his father did not give heed to his brother's warning, hoping his son would be attracted to his sect later on under the influence of some heresiarch, after he was educated in grammar. Therefore the boy was sent to Bologna for study, having left behind his youth in Verona. Although he was removed from the presence of heretics, nevertheless he did not lack new kinds of challenges, which were fighting to steal the flower of his chastity, having been accustomed to those of the more youthful age at home. For who in the midst of the allurements of the flesh, deceptions of the world, plots of enemies, and hazardous company of companions, is able to sufficiently protect the integrity of mind and body? Living in the body apart from the body, men are not angels, says St. Jerome. Wherefore, this clever boy expelled all his passions, having been given a good soul, and by means of an unsullied body and immaculate heart, he recognized and marveled at the goodness of the divine plan around him. And he confessed his purity before all, and on the way he was able to avoid any moral lapses in chastity. Furthermore, though living with scorpions, he was not perverted. Like a second Joseph, he abandoned the company of those lying in ambush on account of his modesty, and he went into the hand of the Egyptians, and he fled to the refuge of the religious life by cutting off the world with the flower of his modesty. He despised his parents by destroying air, and he was received from the world into the order of preachers under Blessed Dominic, as it is written in the lives of the brethren. He was about to become an extraordinary preacher, a fighter against heresy, a hater of uncleanness, and a most powerful prosecutor against sins. In that order, characterized by humility and poverty, and led by Father Dominic, he was a virgin following a virgin. He achieved the heights of great perfection, building from one virtue to another, going up like a wondrous light until his final day. During his novitiate, he was set on fire with great zeal against the flesh, heedless that the delicate servant nourished in the light might be crushed. He afflicted himself with fastings and abstinences of excessive harshness and weakened himself in prayer and by honest vigils. However, by exceeding the proper measure of his fragility, he nearly lost his life, which the enemy sought to destroy. His strength was ebbing from excessive weakness and his jaw was so strongly contracted that it was hardly able to be forcibly opened. 
by an instrument in order to get him to swallow anything. The Lord, having pity on him, or rather, on his people, did not allow that blessed mouth to be sealed for a long time. In the midst of his church, he ordained it to be opened many times. When restored to perfect health, he altered the manner of his abstinence, but not the practice of or custom of abstemiousness. Having had his human weakness tested, he added compassion to his virtues, and he ordered the dispositions of goodness and moderation. Although he remained himself frugal and austere, nevertheless he was always indulgent towards the needs of others. From the abundant grace poured forth on his lips, the Lord inflamed the devotion of a great many hearts, so that they rejoiced exceedingly with him. They were able to present gifts, many pious gifts, as the brethren who then were presently diligently recorded. On account of him they sent abundant provisions of food, although the whole of one Lent he ate nothing at all. He was in the habit of often abstaining, following him who came to serve and not to be served. He did not even permit himself slothful leisure, a trap of the enemy. He was regularly drilled in the right ways of the Lord and was seized totally by virtue. Nothing pertaining to vice could prevail in him, and he was protected from spiritual wickedness. This beloved man was pleasing in devotion, gentle in obedience, in benevolence agreeable, in patience constant, in charity preeminent, and in ripeness of morals complete. Diverse laymen and brethren testify about him whom they saw and lived the common life with in the same household. His purity and sanctity were so great that holy virgins from the heavenly court sometimes visited him and spoke with him while he prayed. When he stayed in a certain city, in a convent of the order, it happened that while praying in his cell, certain brothers led by levity crossed over next to his cell and heard many conversations. They decided among themselves that whoever the visitors were, they would apprehend them. They who heard women's voices lacking devotion supposed women to be in his cell. In chapter, they accused him of giving testimony in the presence of the prior about how many times it happened, having laid this blame on Peter. The prior said that to lead women into the dormitory, even for most laudable reasons, such as hearing their confessions or to give necessary counsel, is a sacrilege. Arising in their midst, the prior addressed Friar Peter and asked him about this thing. Peter neither explained about those to whom he was speaking, since he would not assert himself by boasting, about having conversations with blessed virgins. He also considered to himself that solitary honesty did not count for much against the word of several, nor did he confess to having women in his cell, even though they searched it. Instead, silently prostrate in their midst, he asked pardon. Who, he said, is able to say, I am so free of sin that I am not in need of pardon? The harsh prior asked him how had he even dared to let honest women into his cell when there was the great danger of giving the note of infamy to the entire convent. As luck would have it, he was judged more as incautious and simple, for at that time the order of preachers blossomed and all lasciviousness was banished from among them. Therefore the prior ordered Friar Peter to depart from that convent and to go to the convent of Iesi, of the same order, located in the marches, to remain there and there to be located permanently, so that he might learn not to scandalize the convent by incautious acts. His head inclined, 
The innocent friar received this with humility. He accepted the journey and began to live there. One night he was praying with devotion before the image of the crucifix and being tortured by shame without cause. He was beset by a rebuking conscience. This sensitive soul was excited to tears and leveling a pious complaint at the crucifix, he said, My Lord, you know my innocence in this matter. Why did you permit me to be judged in this way? And the image of the crucifix replied to him, And I, Peter, what evil did I do that with such opprobrium and contempt I would be condemned to a cross? Learn, therefore, from my example to bear all with equanimity. By such words he was wonderfully comforted and consoled. Moreover, in course of time it became known that the brethren who had believed that the virgins of the Heavenly Father had been mere women had been deceived by error. Ever since then, the image of the crucifix in that convent has been held in reverence and in honor. He often served the sick with tender solicitude. Frequently, he received guests with cheerful affection. Sometimes, he carried out the office of porter, watching with composure in words and gestures. In no work, however humble or vile, did he show himself obstinate or reluctant. Sometimes, like Martha, having looked after others, by careful outward service, and then sitting at the feet of our Lord with Mary. Neither day or night saw the cessation of his prayers and his divine colloquies, colloquies, and his divine colloquies. He always carried the Gospels of Christ or another sacred text under his arm or on his breast or in his hands, always reading when he was able or meditating on the reading or thinking about something he heard and committing it to memory. For an ardent desire for wisdom animated him, and he was made a great lover of divine reading, like the Ethiopian eunuch. Though he was burdened by daily tasks, when he was able, he never ceased to read spiritual books. In this way, he matured to a love of speaking and the desire of doing well, so that though now and then he had to perform routine daily tasks, he did not cherish wisdom any less. For divine providence brought together in him a docile heart and a steadfast memory for loyally protecting the deposit of faith and a learned tongue for effectively dispensing that same deposit. His heart was made a repository for the sacred law and the holy armor of the scriptures. He was on fire for the defense of the same faith and he prevailed and accomplished everything by waging incessant combat against those horrible enemies. And in the end, he happily consummated his long struggle by attaining the victory of martyrdom. For he wished to endure death from an early age. This desire manifested itself in being submissive to divine will and by making frequent supplications to the Lord so that he might not be permitted to pass from this life without drinking from the chalice of suffering. He was not cheated of this desire. He was appointed a preacher general. So where he took up the trumpet of preaching, he was like another Gideon. He sounded like some glorious blast, stirring up both the faithful and his enemies. And he was heard in many different places. For his sound went forth in all the lands of the province of Lombardy, even up to Rome and through the great part of Tuscany. And among the whole of Romagna, and the marches of Ancona. For what city or village was there not stirred to devotion by his clamor? 
What people were there whose hearts he did not delay to smite, or whose ears he had not wait to smite? Whole regions recall how the odor of heavenly doctrine was diffused everywhere. To some, it was an odor that led to life. To others, it was an odor that led to death. Everywhere, he has become a marvel. Everywhere, his name is made famous. The ear which heard him blessed him, and the eye which saw him bore testimony to the accomplishment of good works, for the exaltation of the faith and the victorious confutation of error. How many and what kind of fruit he bore in the salvation of souls and in his abundance of merits is known only to him who can count the multitude of the stars, to whom everything is bare and laid open. For he is blessed who carries the yoke of the Lord from his childhood. How much more blessed, exceeding the young Benjamin in holiness and purity, having lived the space of thirty years in the company of the preachers, and spent the whole of the number of the days of his life in the school of divine service, even until the triumph of his passion. Though silent in the night, which was ordained for man's rest, after a brief sleep, he turned toward study and reading, and during the time of rest, he was occupied with devoted prayers and sighs. The day, however, was devoted to the advantage of souls, whether in daily and painstaking concerns for preaching, or in persevering in the hearing of confessions, or rather, by inveighing against the dogmas of the heretics with powerful arguments, many of which were settled by his illumination by a special gift of grace. Thus the Lord added grace to grace, because in every place the multitudes of the people flocked together to his preaching, and he showed the magnitude of his powers. On his account, many abjured heresy when confronted by Catholic truth. Many inflicted with injuries were pardoned and saw the end of discord. Many were hurried to penance by the confession of their sins. He sent so many seeds to the winnower and brought forth such a great crop. On this account, how easy the efforts and how few the days seemed in light of the magnitude of the love of God. His teaching dropped like rain among the showers of his eloquence, as if it were dropped from heaven. By the help of the Lord, his sermons were confirmed by great signs, and many miracles began to occur. One day, when he was preaching in Milan in front of the entrance of the church of St. Eustorigio, a mute youth was led to him by the piety of the crowd. He placed his finger, which had been consecrated to confect the body of Christ, in the boy's mouth. Upon this, his tongue was restored to health, and the chains of speech were released. He asked the boy, who had been mute for so long, nearly ten years, what he had in his mouth. Your finger, he said, and at once erupted in abundant thanksgiving in the presence of all, and returned an offering to Christ from his lips so newly opened. On account of this, the lips of the heretics ought to be stopped up with shame. Yet those impudent dogs are not upset by solitary confutation and are ignorant of shame, though the Lord reveals many signs and wonders for his glory by the saint. A woman of Mantua was able to hope for and earn remission for her sins, which oppressed her by their great number, by the merits of the servant of God. Confronted with the crisis of death, she had for a long period of time lost her voice. Coming toward her, Peter asked whether she might desire to enter life through hearing and leave death by speaking. Peter, having reverently removed his hood, said, Dominus vobiscum, 
and she began to hear, for the first time, the beginning of the gospel according to John. Next, so that by speaking she might confess her sin, he enjoined her. Anything received ought to be used with obedience, or with grace, preferably for the purpose of salvation. The bystanders, having been struck dumb, happily went home. They had not been able to hear the sins being confessed. Later she began to speak loudly, and she began a general confession, which she completed, and it was able to be heard and understood outside the house. On account of this, Peter's fame and power were spread not only in Mantua, but were everywhere magnified and diffused daily throughout the countryside. He often went to preach at Cessna, where he truly enjoyed to go, because when the people knew he was coming, a great multitude quickly and eagerly ran to meet him. Even the nobles and the great matrons ran, with great haste and without their mantles, without which garment the ladies of nearby lands would not dare to go out. When he was received by the people, he was led into a broad street of the city where, placed in an eminent position, at once he began to expound on the word of the Lord to all those who were sitting. This done, he was taken to his lodgings at the church of St. John the Evangelist. One day, Peter was making his way through Cessna when a noble youth came into his path who was called John Blasius. He asked the holy man to touch his hand so that he could be freed from a horrible cyst which he had for ten years and which on account of a long duration of time had already been made hard. However, the man of God protested that his merits were insufficient to do what he asked, and he refused. But when pressed again with devotion, he took the hand and made the sign of the cross over the cyst and said, Trust in the Lord, son, because before long you will be free. And immediately both parted from each other. The young man looked at his hand and found himself totally healed, and the hardness of the cyst vanished, and he gave thanks to God. So there was other, lots of other miracles, obviously. I mean, multiplying oil, uh, cures, healing people, things like this. Here's one that uh, somebody tried to challenge him. Uh, heretic did. Uh, when blessed Peter, zealous for the faith and on fire with truth, was refuting heretics by his disputations, he was not able to communicate the power of Christ even by apparent miracles. A heretic near Milan, incited by zeal for evil, brought together many heretics and said, those people are stupid. They show forth such great reverence for Friar Peter of Verona and glorify him above others, so that he might be renowned for miracles. I know how to confound him so that his miracles will appear false and so that the people who credit him by working miracles will be ashamed. For though I am healthy before all men, I will pretend to have a grave sickness and I will plead with him that he would restore my health to me and he will make the sign of the cross over me and touch me, and I will reveal myself as having been cleansed. And when the people retell this miracle, I will assert to the contrary that I never was sick, and you will hold the testimony of having been sworn. And in this way, no one will have any more faith in his miracles. This said, it pleased those of evil dispositions, and they looked forward to confounding blessed Peter by this deception, since they had not been able to defeat him in disputation. Therefore, the heretic came to the Dominican church in Milan, holding a walking stick, as if he were not able to stand on his feet, and said to blessed Peter in a weak and subdued voice, Holy Father, since I am so gravely and dangerously ill, and medical remedies 
have been unable to help me, I beseech you to touch me with your hand and that you use the beneficial help of your merits for my health. Then the holy man, illuminated by the grace of the Holy Spirit, said, I beseech the Lord Jesus Christ that, if you be sick, health be restored to you. But if you are fraudulently simulating sickness, may he consign your body to infirmity for the health of your soul. Immediately, as these words were finished, a great fever seized him, so that he was really unable to stand on his feet and had to be carried to his own house by other servants. And when he was put on a couch and having called doctors to attend him, the cures failed and they judged that he would die in a short period of time. This caused a great shock to his thinking. He, now not with false devotion, asked Blessed Peter to come. He exposed the evil nature of his act to him and confessed his sins humbly and abjured heresy. He was then immediately freed by the prayers and merits of Blessed Peter from illness of mind and body. Truly were the heretics confuted, and, having lied in their iniquity, they have striven to confound the man of God. One day, when he, was, when he had agreed to meet with leading heretics, though they met him with much wickedness and severe jeering, one heretic invited him to an open debate. Peter neither declined this fight, nor was he over-eager. For if he was reluctant, the heretic might be thought to be confounding and convicting him. Therefore, gathering for the war of words, the heretic made his arguments sufficiently subtle for providing his perfidy. While blessed Peter, since the argument the heretic made was unexpected, asked for some delay before making a response. The delay was granted and excited the anticipation of all. Peter gathered himself and went into a nearby church and prayed with tears before the altar dedicated to Mary, that she might provide him with a defense of the true faith. Certain doubts began to arise in him, and on this account he prayed with more fervent devotion, and he felt himself solidified in the faith against all ambiguities after hearing the voice of the Blessed Virgin from the image. I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. Being thus comforted, he went out to the heretics and demanded that they repeat their arguments a second time. But they were struck dumb by the power of God so that they were unable to utter any word, and they withdrew in disorder. One day, when Blessed Peter was in Florence, and all the citizens were gathered on a broad street, which was called the New Market, he preached the word of God to the great multitudes. And when the man of God was preaching his sermon, the people all reverently strained with devotion to hear what things he might say. It happened that a Florentine nobleman's servant approached the place where Blessed Peter was preaching with his Lord's massive horse, and suddenly, perhaps at the instigation of the enemy of the human race, so that the preaching of the man of God and the devotion of the people would be thrown into confusion. The horse, struggling with the footman, broke away quickly into a gallop, and the servant was thrown to the ground. The horse turned towards the people sitting in the piazza and ran toward them with great speed. The people, seeing the horse quickly making its way towards the piazza, were thrown into a great fright, and on account of the great pressure which arose there, they were not able to get away except for those standing in the furthest edges of the crowd. Blessed Peter, seeing the people's terror, was suddenly strengthened by the Spirit of God, 
He extended his arm and protected the people with a small sign of the cross and called out with a great shout, Let no one rise up, let no one fear, and let no one make way. For the grace of Christ will supply aid, so that no one shall be injured. Then the horse rushed on his swift course towards the people, and running from one side of the piazza to another, it put its feet over the heads, knees, vitals, and shoulders of men and women. Its hooves trampled over a great part of the multitude, and so it passed right through the, and then disappeared. This having transpired, a diligent inquiry was made among the crowd, and it was reported that by the working of the grace of Christ, no one at all had any injury as the man of God had foretold. Another time in the same city, Blessed Peter was preaching in the old market. The enemy of the human race, jealous of the fruits of his preaching of doctrine, sought to impede him, but did not succeed. For in the forum a night black horse appeared. Coming from the street of the iron workers, it swiftly reached the forefront of the piazza of the market. Its visage and implacable speed caused much fear. And the people took flight, at which point the man of God made the sign of the cross, and the horse suddenly vanished, injuring no one. There was in Florence a good number of citizens who were infected with the heresy of the Manichaeans, those claiming that the devil was the creator of visible things, and against whom blessed Peter manfully contended as a distinguished fighter and inquisitor. With Peter stood the noble family called the Rossi and other Catholics who distinguished themselves by showing the banner of the cross, so that they could fight the battle of the Lord against the heretics, Peter with words and they with their swords. The Catholics won the battle with the heretics across the river Arno, in the Piazza Sancta Felicita, and near the Arno, in the place which is called the Well of San Sisto, not very far from the convent of the order. They drove them together and expelled them from the city, so that no rotting flesh could corrupt the surviving body, and so the diseased sheep might not infect the whole flock. And still today, the monuments of victory remain in the city, the sign of the cross graven in stone and set over the gate, but also the banner of the cross bestowed on the anniversary of the founding of the Men's Society, which was called by the name of St. Peter Martyr. When Blessed Peter fruitfully exercised the office of preacher throughout Italy, it happened that a youth, feeling compunction as a result of Peter's preaching, came to him for confession. Among other things, he confessed that, because of anger, he had kicked his mother with his foot. St. Peter, chastising him for such evil presumption, told the boy, to his alarm, that the foot which had hit his mother deserved to be cut off, and he gave him solitary penance and absolved him after which Peter permitted him to leave. However, the words of Blessed Peter about the cutting off his foot kept running through the mind all day and deceived by diabolic persuasion. He secretly took a pickaxe and cut off his foot in vengeance for his wickedness. And when he cried out because of excessive pain, his father and mother and others of his family ran to him. Hearing that the words of Blessed Peter had given him occasion for such an act, his father went to Blessed Peter without delay and related the cause of his sorrow, asking that he would not refuse to see his stricken boy so that he could beseech the Lord with his prayers. Then the pious father, having taken his associate, went to the boy and was moved by tender compassion. Having confidence in the goodness of Christ, 
He sent away all who were present, though he allowed the boy's parents and friends to stay. He besought the mercy of God on bended knee and with the most devoted tears and arising with the great trust in God, took the foot in his hands and setting it against the leg and making small sign of the cross, suddenly the boy was healed. And it was as if there was never any wound at all. Nevertheless, as the sign of the miracle, a thin scar remained where the foot was joined, but there was no internal injury. There was other other stories, accounts of one was a field that he told the heretic his 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 fruit uh, his garden his his farm wouldn't yield any fruit and there a Catholic would and if he wanted to anything to grow he should convert you know things like that. Uh, the one where you see the photo, you probably look at is that a Mary with horns? There's a reason, but here comes the story on that one. During that time, Blessed Peter wandered through the Milanese countryside with zeal for the faith and with tireless preaching and disputing. A noble and faithful man who lived in the town near Milan, led by his charity, often received Peter with hospitality. But the heretics who lived in the town, having a hatred for Blessed Peter on account of his zealous fervor, attempted to turn the noble from the friendship of God and from the uprightness of faith. And when they had labored at this many days without effect, one of the heretics, who was a necromancer, thought to pervert him by a diabolic artifice, whom they were not able to sway by false words of persuasion. One day the noblemen went to the church of the heretics, which was in town, the one at which they held their abominable conventicle, and with his associates, who were present, the heretic necromancer said to the faithful man, so that you might yourself learn the deception of that friar Pietro of Verona, and that our faith is true, and the faith of the Roman church false, I ask that the Lord might show the truth to us here by a wondrous sign. And immediately when he finished talking, a diabolic illusion appeared, a splendor as if from heaven, which illuminated the whole church of the heretics, after which the devil, transmuted into the appearance of a beautiful and venerated lady, stood over the altar, most pleasing to the eye, and it seemed holding a boy in its hands. It called the faithful man by his own name and said, Indeed, you are unworthy of grace because of that friar Pietro of Verona, unworthy of me and my son whom I hold in my arms. My faithful ones who are present here believe by sermons, but you seem to scorn their pious and true doctrine. But because I am the mother of mercy, I am prepared to remit all for you if you will dismiss Friar Pietro and adhere to these faithful ones of mine. Seeing and hearing this, the nobleman was unable to discern between the tricks of the devil and the true faith, and he forgot that one should not be credulous of all spirits. He immediately acquiesced to the evil one's warning, whose shrewdness he did not know how to recognize, and bending the knee he believed, even though it was an ignorant mistake, and he asked forgiveness and was converted to the faith of the heretics. With that, the evil vision disappeared. After a short time, it happened that Blessed Peter, again making a journey there, was denied the customary hospitality, but because it was late, the nobleman was ashamed to deny him lodging. Then the man of God, a prudent observer, knew him to be transformed into a heretic, and speaking to some who lived in those parts, found that it was as he thought. 
And when Peter discovered that he had been deceived by a diabolic fraud, he thought to return him to the faith by arguments and the aid of truth, since he had been deluded by the fraudulent demonic illusion. But he whom Peter wished to raise up was lying so low, that he thought he ought to himself bend somewhat to him, imitating the apostles saying to the Jews, I become a Jew, that I might gain them. He employed skilled counsel and showed himself on account of things he claimed to have heard as seeming to totter a little on his faith. The nobleman said to Peter, Do you freely wish to hear them in their church yourself? Peter assented and said that if he might convince them by reason or signs, then he would adhere faithfully to them. Rejoicing that such a notable man might be one, the nobleman secretly went at once to the heretics and asked them to assemble in the church and stay till morning to pray that the truth might be shown to blessed Peter as it had been shown to him. The heretics rejoiced, thinking that they would be happy if they were able to convert one who fought so strongly against them. The necromancer heretic said, Have no doubt that in fact the Blessed Virgin who appeared to that nobleman will also visit Friar Pietro to his advantage and will draw him into the faith of the good men. Blessed Peter ruminated nearly the whole night and neglected sleep. He emptied himself in prayer and devotion so that the love of Christ might lay bare the diabolic machinations to the honor of the Catholic truth. Rising with the first light of morning, just as if to say maddens, he left the house and went to the church of the Catholics in Milan to celebrate Mass. He finished Mass before the people arrived and consecrated two hosts, one of which he received and another which he carried concealed in a pyx in his hood. He immediately went to the man who had come to guide him and said, It is good that we hurry to the church of the heretics. And when the heretics had gathered, as it were preordained, the necromancer heretic arose and prostrated wickedly before the altar, saying, I pray, Lord, that you would find Friar Pietro standing here worthy to open the true faith to him. Then, as it had the first time, immediately a light appeared by demonic power, and the demon stood over the altar in the form of the virgin, holding her son in her lap, and said, Friar Pietro, who until now has opposed me, I, a loving mother, and prepared to obtain mercy for you from my son if you leave the heirs of the Roman Church. Do you wish to conform to the comforts of these, my faithful? Then blessed Peter took the picks in which the body of Christ lay and which he had hidden in his hood and opened it, saying to her, If you are truly the mother of God, adore your son. At these words, he showed the body of Christ and the whole fantastic vision disappeared with horrible uproar and stench. The church of the evildoers was cast down and the nobleman, whom the devil has seduced with many others, reverently returned to blessed Peter and the true faith on account of which the heretics were mightily confounded and with them all the followers of impiety and depravity. So you remember the whole, when I mentioned the beginning of this about the uh, controlling the weather, here's that, here's one of those stories. One day, Blessed Peter was examining a Cathar bishop, a great multitude of bishops and religious along with a greater part of the city had come together to witness the event, not only to hear Peter's preaching, but also to see the examination of the heretic. The dispute was long and drawn out, so much that all were afflicted by the great heat. 
the Hrisiarch resorted to derision, and he began to exclaim in all the presence of all, O perverse Peter, if you are so holy, as this stupid mob here affirms you to be, why do you permit them to be so greatly afflicted by heat, and why don't you ask God to make a cloud to cover them, so that this stupid people might not die from heat? The athlete of the faith trustingly responded that he would do so, if the heretic would promise that he would immediately abjure his heresy and be converted to the faith. Many of the Catholics began to be worried about the obligation undertaken by Blessed Peter, fearing that the Catholic faith might suffer embarrassment. On the other hand, many of the infidels were full of joy, awaiting his confutation with gladness, especially since there was not the least trace of a cloud in the sky. They began to harass their bishop with shouts so that he would promise. And in this way, the obstinate heretics forced him to swear. Though the bishop had been unwilling to obligate himself, he was unable to break or in any way soften them. Blessed Peter, not weakened by the joy of the infidels nor the fear of the faithful, trusting in the Lord that he might make a cloud appear, he said, Because the good God was creator and fashioner of all visible and invisible things, I ask him that as a consolation to the faithful, who believe in him, and as an embarrassment to the non-believers, he might deign to send to us some small cloud, which shall interpose itself between the sun and the people, and might serve to defend us from this heat. From his high pulpit he finished, having made the sign of the cross. Suddenly the Lord sent a cloud over them, as if like a tent, which served for a long period as his shadow over all the people, and was a cause for exaltation among the faithful and a mock against the heretics. So there was a conspiracy to kill Peter, and it took him money, days. There were people, heretics were planning this whole event. And so uh, we'll skip for the first couple of days because it just basically talks about the money they got changed, uh, who's funding it, who was the, the plans for the idea for it. Like I said, if you want to get the book, get the book. Let's see. Uh, he told them to get ready at the place they chose for the ambushes. Peter did ask him to wait till after Easter, though, for uh, let's see what he does. Therefore, on Palm Sunday, the 40th, uh, 40th day preceding his happy martyrdom near Milan, he was preaching in the presence of the great multitude. He preached that the heretics contemplated his death and that the money was laid in deposit for the crime. He said, let them do what they wish. I will be worse for them in death than in life. He allotted to a delay to certain uh, fautors of heresy until the octave of Easter, during which time he had to obey the command of the church prescribing the return, and he departed for Como, where he was the prior for the brethren. So, like I guess at the end of the end of the time, <laughs> they're like, "Hey man, hold off, hold off for a little bit. I'm going to do this, and then you can come back at me." Now, let's see, where was I at? Uh, Carino had told him he had, uh, told him to be ready for the opportunity to complete the business. In the meanwhile, Carino had visited the house of the Dominicans for several days, not wanting to miss the holy man who might return to Milan without being killed. Therefore, he waited there three days. At daybreak of the fourth day, he found out that the holy man had departed and hastening quickly back to his employers. He demanded they supply a mule for him in order to make a swift getaway. Manfredo demurred. Neither did he supply a horse. Therefore, Carino hastened on foot, frustrated at not having the means of escape after the deed. Little did he know that preceding difficulty was not of import, 
because Peter was very weak from quartan fever, which he had endured all day, and his steps proceeded exceedingly slowly. Therefore Saturday, which is at the end of the 70 days, called Sabado and Albis, is in reference to the preceding Feast of Easter. The athlete of Christ was returning to the battle at his convent in Milan, but instead came to the end of his life. When he was in the middle of his journey near Barlassina, the deadly Carino, a heretic and a follower of the cruel heretics, was hiding off to his left in dense woods. He had been hired at their request for a price of 40 lire, and it was he who sped the holy man in the journey of salvation. It was like a sheep against a wolf, the meek against the savage, the pious against the impious, the tame against the raging, the modest against the unrestrained, the just against the profane. Carino was consumed with insults, trained in struggle, eager for death. He made a victim of the priest, attacking the sacred head with his accursed sword. He sated his sword on the blood of the just one, repeatedly hacking at his wounds. Peter, not turning from the enemy, immediately showed himself as an offering, and he sustained the patience under the awful blows of the murderer. Laid low in the place of his suffering, he was half dead. Suddenly the butcher turned to Friar Domenico, his comrade, filling the air with calls for help from his pitiful voice, and gave him four lethal wounds. In response to the crude blows, the holy man, for his part, commended his spirit to the Lord, saying, Into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. He did not even then cease to proclaim the faith, nor did he forget to confess the creed, which he had not abandoned as a boy even to the coaxion of his uncle, like the herald of the faith even in the pangs of death. The wicked killer, cheated of death, was captured later by one of the faithful who had been roused by the cries of Friar Domenico, and the brethren later brought back Friar Domenico, who survived for some days. But when the martyr of the Lord stirred one last time, the cruel killer took his dagger and stabbed the confessor in the side. In this way, he consummated his blessed martyrdom. Now in this photo, I'll mention the triple crown, what that means later. You notice in the crown, in the photo, he's writing the creed in his blood. Uh, that's what he was talking about in that last story about uh, saying the creed until we died. Uh, on the same day in the monastery of Ripoli, which is near Florence, a certain nun stood praying, though she was slightly sleepy. At length, she saw the Blessed Virgin on a high throne in glory and two friars preachers ascending into heaven who were placed on either side of her. And when seeing this, she asked who then they were. She heard a voice respond to her. This is Friar Pietro of Verona, who has arisen as a glorious aromic odor before the Lord. Even so, Friar Domenico, who was seen to ascend to the heavens with him, was nevertheless not named with him. So there was a joke saying that uh, perhaps the friar had not yet died yet. Uh, for he who suffered with him, we believe, also ascended to heaven with him, but nevertheless was not added to the catalog of the saints. The sister, later learning of the martyrdom, found out that her vision occurred at the same time. She immediately vowed herself to the martyr and merited, by her devout prayers, to be instantly relieved from a certain old infirmity. The truth of the vision was thus proven by a twofold argument, since it agreed in the time it took place and was demonstrated by the miracle of healing. So that the sadness of the faithful 
arisen from the absence of so great a defender, might be fully turned to joy by the illumination, might be turned to joy by the illumination of new heights, the lantern hanging over his venerable tomb in the church of St. Eustergio was lit by the saint himself from heaven, frequently and without the care or attendance of anyone. Because it was exceedingly appropriate for him, who had excellently illuminated the faith by fire and light, to be shown forth by the singular sign of fire and light. Also, over the place of his passion, many religious and other people often saw a light descending from heaven and rising back up to heaven, in which two in the habit of the friar preachers were often seen. This corresponds to the holiness of the martyrs, and there might frequently appear a light coming down from heaven, or a lamp being lit, or the air setting a lamp alight, and the place where the holy body was laid out, or where innocent blood was shared, and where the light shone in both places, so many divine miracles were likewise worked in both. Now, miracles after his death, these are there's tons. Here's one. Uh, in diverse places of the world, and in various provinces, his glory did not cease to shine by evident signs. A boy from Pavia, named Conrad, was sharply struck by a toppling tree trunk and was painfully crushed by the accident so that he lost sense and motion, so much that he was mourned by his mother as dead. When dirt consecrated by the blood of the martyr was placed on the wound, he arose living and unharmed, and leaving his joyful mother, he gladly went back to playing with his friends. A woman named Sabina from Lugano in the Diocese of Como having been despaired of by the physicians because of an acute fever, was freed merely by passing over the land on which the martyr had been killed. And having been harmed by the appearance of feverishness, she was restored to perfect health. But, the mir but that miracle was no less evident than one dawn for the woman in the Diocese of Milan, whose flesh a, rap a cancer had devoured whose flesh a cancer had devoured for many years with unyielding vigor. When she had come to the place where the martyr had been killed, rubbing her wounds on the ground reddened by the blood of the martyr, not only was she then freed from any new pain, but since before she had not been able to tolerate the touch of cloth, a condition which afflicted her for so long a time, she was restored to health completely by virtue of the innocent blood. Peter's blood did not only deliver the sick from their illnesses, but also those on the point of death. And in this photo, that's Peter down there on the bottom right. Uh, very many neglected to celebrate the martyr's feast solemnly, and others paid slight heed to it. The Supreme Pontiff, Innocent IV, being annoyed by this, directed a letter to the prelates and religious of the Universal Church in which he commanded that the martyr's feast be observed as it was done by the Roman Church, that it might be celebrated with all devotion and solemnity, and that they be submissive in the order to celebrate it with all that pertains to proper veneration. New readings were added to the Madden's office, and his feast was ordered inscribed in all the calendars in imitation of the friar's preachers. This same letter of the innocent was renewed by his successor, Alexander IV. They end up putting the, the entire bull in here. Uh, it's a solid read. Though the miracles preceding and following his canonization occurred in diverse place, parts of the world, nevertheless, they may be read in his Legenda and the book which is entitled Vitus, Vitas Fratrum, 
and also the collection writings called called for by the Venerable Father Berengar, the 13th Master of the Order of Friars Preachers, and also those of the Venerable Father Peter Calocluginus, collected in his great legendary. So the next uh, chapter in, this, in the appendix talks about those who violate the Feast of Blessed Peter were punished as well as vow breakers. So it was mostly, like, you know, the heretics were, you know, like poo-pooing him, trying to dismantle the feast and you know, cut down. One was trying to cut down a tree, uh, you know, burn an oak, having taken up the axe. There's was something about being in the place where he was at. Uh, it was a couple of things like that. It was just, you know, just, they didn't like it, and so he fought back in a sense. And vows. Here's one. There was a lady in... Let's see, in the, in the city of Nicosia in Cyprus, there was an exceeding noble lady, the wife of the Prince of Galilee, who had been sterile for almost 14 years with no little sadness of heart. Having Hearing several of Blessed Peter Martyr's miracles were told, she made a vow that if he would beseech the Lord for a son for her, she would give him Peter's name, and when the time came, give him to the order of the brethren of the same martyr. Within 10 months of the vow, she bore a son whom she named Peter. When after six months, she ordered the little boy brought to her, and holding him in her lap, seeing the child to be beautiful and moved to him by vain affections, she said, Blessed Peter would not stand for this evil. You will never be his brother. Wonderful thing, immediately as she revoked her vow, the boy, who had been healthy even to that hour, immediately sickened, and that very day died. Thus, what she had merited to receive by devotion, she lost by ingratitude. There's another lady, Jacobo uh, Buonomini, who for many years had not borne a son. She made a vow to Blessed Peter, uh, promising with the consent of her husband that if she would beseech the Lord for a son, they would never clothe him in any other habit than that of the friars' preachers, and that he might be able to labor for a better life, so that when the boy was of age, he might enter into the order. A short while after she had made the above promise, she conceived and bore a son. When the boy had reached the age of a year and a half, and they already ought to have clothed him. The mother of the boy saw he was very beautiful and despaired of her promise, reflecting that it was not suitable for such a handsome boy to oblige to don the religious habit. Revoking what she had sworn, dressed him in fine secular clothing, but the working of the just judgment of God, so that the mother might know of her fault of ingratitude by the punishment of the boy, after a few days he fell deathly ill. All the ministrations of the doctors were of no avail, and he began to be in the throes of death. The mother, then truly recognizing her fault, turned to the help of Blessed Peter with many prayers for the deliverance of her son, promising that she would fulfill her vow should he be returned to health. Taking the child immediately, she hastened to the house of the brothers' preachers, together with a great company of followers, and laying him on the altar of Blessed Peter Martyr, prayed to him with many tears. Her prayers completed, the boy expired, the mother held the little, little body of her son in her lap with great sadness, so that she might see if he had truly died. Moreover, the brethren and many citizens had come to see the sight, who all, starting with those who had come with the mother, knew and judged him to be truly dead. However, the mother said to the friars that since this blessed Peter did not wish him to leave, therefore receive him dead. While the grave was being prepared, the the women brought in the mother of the boy so that she might beseech Blessed Peter for his resuscitation. This intention was also adopted by the men. She took the little body of the boy and placed him over the altar of the martyr, and she and all those around her offered faithful and devoted prayers. 
As soon as the prayers were finished, the boy came back to life. Having received complete health and seeing everyone, he laughed and took milk, and as if he was comforted and understood, he began to speak. Moreover, the manifest miracle was made known throughout the whole city of Ascoli, and when the parents of the boy, after a while, were eating at their estate, and they offered him a piece of new cheese on the vigil of the feast of Blessed Peter Martyr, he, who was accustomed to eat anything, now refused the cheese as if he was the one who fasted. And just as he was able, he said, stammering, I do not wish to eat cheese, because today is the vigil of Blessed Peter Martyr. Moreover, his parents had not known the day of the vigil, and immediately sent a servant to the nearest church, so that they might find out if the little boy was correct. But inquiring among the whole family, they found out that no one had made mention of the vigil in the presence of the boy, nor of the feast. Truly, he renounced meat and eggs, saying it was against his custom, for these things were not permitted to him on account of the vigil of Blessed Peter Martyr. There's pages more of you know fevers, dropsy, and other illnesses and defects cleansed by Peter's merits. Various ones called back to life by the merits of St. Peter. It's all after his death, by the way. Um, easy delivery of young boy granted by the merits of St. Peter. He gives offspring eyes and hands. And certain one in danger of death is saved. <clears throat> uh, fevers, dropsy, and paralysis cured by Peter. Uh, another one, the laboring constrictions. The laboring with constrictions, cancers, manias, and epilepsy cleansed by the merits of St. Peter. Weaknesses and difficult births are aided in Ireland, though through holy water washed in the relics of St. Peter. So there's a there's holy there's St. Peter martyr water, and it's, it's you use the relic to help bless the water, and it's supposed to help in uh, you know birthing in birthing situations. Um, here's one another the first one in the Irish province, the diocese of Killaroy, there was a woman named Alicia who first had lost the use of speech for a long time and finally lost the complexion proper for a living person so that she seemed to be dead. Since she had remained and subdued for two days, all signs pointing that she was near death, all the blankets and things that were necessary for a funeral were prepared. After she had tasted the powerful water sanctified by contact with the relics of the martyr, suddenly she recovered all her lost speech and feelings and her color was restored and at length full restoration of health followed. Now the you can find the prayer for the blessed holy water. I have it on sensefidelium.com and uh, you do a Google search, you'll find it. You just need the, the relic too to help, you know, the, for the complete thing. I'm sure it works just by using the blessing, but, you know, using the relic is also an ingredient. In the village of Borja in the Irish province of the Diocese of Limerick, there was a boy named Elias who was tormented by a terrible tumor in his foot and he found it intolerable. He was unable to rest or to travel or even to take food. After he had fasted in such agony for two days, for three, only, for three days he tasted only the water that had been sanctified by contact with the martyr's relics. On the first day he felt better, on the second day more improvement, and on the third he felt and declared himself fully healed. He washed his tumor with the same water and immediately the pain was relieved. And he was able to walk with strength and he ate with joy. On account of this, the inhabitants of the village moved with remarkable wonder, went to the clerks into the church and rang the bells, and they began, began to devoutly sing the Te Deum, to the glory of God and the holy martyr Peter, who alone had accomplished this great miracle. In the Irish province of the Diocese of Limerick, the wife of the certain John 
Donna Vola, was overcome with tears since she had lost his voice and seemed dead. After a drink of the solitary water, he recovered the power of speech and was completely restored to health. Another woman in the same city after drinking the water vomited not a great quality of dirt and she was delivered from the sudden danger of death. Another with a similar name called Leticia, so that men might rejoice in her healing, through a similar drink vomited a certain old affliction of which she was already despairing and full health followed. Not less amazing was the cure of a certain boy of the town of Emily Diocese. Emily Diocese. He was affected, afflicted by a terrible swelling in his whole body so that he was horrible to look at and his parents thought death preferable to life in such a state. Yet they dared to hope for some remedy. So the mother washed him in the saving water, which had been consecrated by contact with the relics of the holy martyr, and he tasted any that dripped off. Suddenly the swelling decreased, and as she had hoped, he was restored to health by the merits of the glorious martyr. So remember the whole triple crown thing? Uh, we had the last photo, or one photo, a couple minutes, 20, 30 minutes, whatever, had it on here. Here's another one with the palm. You see that? And three crowns in it. So what does that have to do with anything? Uh, the author says, The notion of the triple crown goes back into Christian antiquity, but it was Peter's canonization that brought it again to the attention of the medieval church. The idea of a crown derived from Christianity's earliest period. The epistles of the New Testament refer to the crown that awaits those who die in Christ. The regal term crown implied reigning with Christ after a good life. The book of Revelation is more explicit when it comes to the state of the saints in heaven. It pictures 24 elders in white garments wearing golden crowns. They stand at the head of the 144,000 whose robes are washed clean in the blood of the Lamb and who hold palm branches. Uh, earliest patristic writers spoke of the crown, which represented the reward promised by Christ. Since the essential connotation of the crown is ruling with Christ, the church attributed a crown to those who is believed to be reigning with Christ in glory. The, this, uh, the implied initially to the martyrs, uh, martyrdom was thought to grant immediately, immediate entrance into the heavenly kingdom where one would obtain the crown of glory because of the signal victory obtained in the name of Christ. Later, with the cessation of general persecution, the monastic life became a priority as the ideal Christian way of life. This movement brought with it the exaltation of virginity, which merited a crown from early in the Christian history as well. Eventually, preaching also became a work meriting a crown. Uh, in, the, in the notes, it says, the image passed through several generations, the first being priesthood. The crown was then attributed to mastership of Christian doctrine, which included preaching and teaching. In Dominican theology, preaching again became the prime factor in possession of the crown. Let's see. Uh, a sermon by Nicholas de Guran, a prior of Paris in the late 1200s, traces the point of theology where the triple image was first employed. Nicholas cites a work entitled De Mirabilibus Sacre Scriptore, which he attributed in cavalier medieval fashion to St. Augustine of Hippo himself. In reality, the work was by one August Augustinius Hibernicus, written around the year 655. For Augustinius, the triple notion of priesthood, martyrdom, and virginity indicated the fullness of Christian life. Abel, Adam, and Eve's son possessed these three before anyone else. 
Abel was the proto-martyr, the first to die in the name of God. He was also a virgin, and he was the first to offer pleas and sacrifice to God as a testament of his faith, the first priest. In light of all this, Augustinus Hibernicus claimed that Abel was a type of Christ who was virgin, priest, and martyr. Though Augustinus did not refer to crowns, his work on the triple righteousness of Abel was the foundation for further development. The death of Peter Martyr occurred at the beginning of the Dominican development of the theology of the Triple Crown. His death perhaps caused a flurry of theological reflection on the crowns, for otherwise it is difficult to understand the sudden interest. Before that time, the Triple Crown had not been of primary importance to the church at large. The standard was simply too high, even for the vast majority of Christian saints. It was difficult to live a life that included mastership and communication of doctrine, lifelong virginity, and final martyrdom. Early theologians agreed about Abel and John the Baptist, but it was hard to find saints of the Christian era who merited the distinction. After all, they presumed that the apostles had been married with the exception of John. This denied them the crown of virginity. Though John possessed the crown of virgins, he missed the crown of martyrs, in all the early church, only St. Paul had merited the triple crown, since he had remained a virgin, became the preeminent doctor of Christian theology, and suffered martyrdom. Of all the fathers of the early church, many were married. Though some were martyred, none merited the title of virgin in popular or ecclesial devotion. Later doctors eschewed marriage, but by this time their opportunity for martyrdom had passed. The age of martyrs had closed. Martyrdom became a rare thing in the church. When the theology of the Triple Crown was developing in the Middle Ages, only one member of the early church was accorded in honor. Uh, a French Dominican in the mid-13th century speaks of St. Catherine of Alexandria as a possessor of the Triple Crown. For him, she was Pediatrix Virgo et Martyr. Of all the fathers and doctors and martyrs of the early church, the honor of the three laurels fell only upon the young female philosopher of Alexandria. Catherine of Alexandria became the patroness of Christian philosophers when so many other worthy men could as easily have held that title. Peyrod and Aquinas are two of the earliest witnesses to the upsurge of interest in the Triple Crown theology following the death of Peter of Verona. The Dominican liturgy, uh, circa 1256, codified under the direction of Humbert of Romans, also provides, provides early testimony. The liturgy, this liturgy provides the keynote introduction of the three crowns that would characterize the rest of Peter's cultic development. The hymns and the antiphons of the office recognize Peter's triple status. O Peter, martyr famous, glory of the preachers, Gifted with virginity, by word, by wonders, by grace. Uh, there was an antiphon. Uh, Peter, the new saint, ascends to the heavens, crowned with laurels, richly endowed with the triple victory. Reaching a climax, the antiphon restates the original theme. Peter, full of the strength of purity and shining with the loveliness of doctrine, the shining victory of martyrdom glows with the glory of the triple crown. 
Here's another photo of St. Peter with the triple crowns. You see him right here on the right. Stabbed through the heart, axe in his head, and the triple crowns. Here's the Fra Angelico uh, painting. You see the triple crowns coming down on top of his head. Here's another one. I think that we got Catherine Siena and Mary Magdalene right there. And here's St. Peter with the triple crowns. Here's another one with uh, Catherine of Siena, Mary Magdalene, and St. Peter again. There's the triple crowns coming down on top of them. There's the three crowns, knife in the head. So there's uh, the healing and protection part of the uh, book. Uh, I'll get into the stats on this. Uh, I think I have it marked down somewhere. Uh, vows dedicated to the expansion of the cult were often the most effective. Those small offerings of money or candles were valuable testaments to the power of the martyr. Other more permanent vows were also popular. Mothers seeking children or having a difficult birth sometimes promised to name their child Peter. We talked a little bit about that. Let's see. A woman who had given birth to a stillborn son besieged Peter with her prayers. When she detected signs of movement in the boy, she rushed him to church for baptism. Apparently, the priest was in quite a hurry, for he forgot that the parents wanted to name him John and mistakenly christened him Peter. Peter was not to be deprived of the honor simply because the parents had forgotten their vows. Pledges to give sons to the Dominican order occasionally followed promises to name them after Peter. Accounts told of three different women who backslid on such a pledge, not wishing to lose their sons to, to the cloister. One child died outright, one child was later raised, and the last sickened terribly three different times. Uh, the statistics given in the tables uh, show a marked propensity for women to pray to Peter for either aid in conception or for a safe delivery. Uh, Peter's recorded rate of performance was also three times that of other saints, and the difference was statistically significant. In the 13th century, Peter's fertility and childbirth miracle rate is 5.4% compared to 1.2% for saints in general. In the 14th century, Peter surpassed the general saint population by 8.8% to 3.3%. This represents the most striking lay appropriation for Peter's cult. That healing miracles in general declined in favor of resurrection and aggression wonders may be construed as evidence of a declining, declining cult. The increase of deliverance and fertility aid, however, probably demonstrates an enduring lay preoccupation. Both women desiring children and women in childbirth prayed to Peter, although he was a virgin, clerical, and celibate saint who showed no marked no mark propensity in his life to assist in such matters. Belief in Peter's power over these affairs became widespread even outside of Italy. The Vitae Fratschgrum tells of Maria de Mutz, Metz, de Metz uh, whose seven children died either before or after birth. After making a vow to Peter, she obtained an easy delivery of a healthy boy. Gerard then says, quote, This miracle, when divulged, became so greatly celebrated in the city of Metz that the women in those parts began to call upon Blessed Peter of the Order of Preachers when they were in labor. Uh, news of the saints who could aid in the dangerous and painful process of childbirth predictably spread quickly. From the region of Troyes comes a very interesting prayer in the 14th century French vernacular. Put in the mouth of a woman, the prayer, the prayer details the story of Peter, closely corresponding to his entry 
in the golden legend. It closes with a call on Peter to aid her in delivery and to be the protection to her offspring. It is a striking testament to the popularity of Peter in France as an intercessor for lay women. Pietro Calo gives further evidence relating an account of a mother of a stillborn baby miraculously surviving a difficult childbirth through Peter's intercession. A few days later, a noblewoman of the same town fainted as she struggled to give birth. One of her attendants said to her parents, Why not hasten to the blessed Peter Martyr? It is the third day since, as you know, he delivered a woman from similar danger. It may have been that women in the Middle Ages, reflecting on the mortal danger inherent in each instance of childbirth, compared their pain to those of a martyr brutally murdered. More than female virgin saints, or even the Blessed Virgin for that matter, the martyr could more readily identify with their pangs. The temporal proximity of Peter to these women may have given him an advantage of their supplications. There's a few uh, uh, instances of miracles from his relics, uh, quite a few of them, obviously. Uh, there was also 13 miracles involving Peter's water, uh, solely found in Tommaso Agni, and all of them are in Ireland. Among them are six cases of healed, contagious, or organic diseases, four childbirth miracles, and two each of cured paralysis and obtained protection. Each case proceeds in the same way. The individual seeking assistance drinks some of the water, sanctified by contact with Peter's relics. The method is always ingestion, even when the problem is a tumorous foot. Uh, the, the water's virtue manifested itself only in drinking it. A boy with a tumorous foot fasted for three days, drinking only Peter's water, and he improved the whole time. The wife of one, Robert Palmer, feared a difficult birth when she drank the water, which she said had the sweetness of honey. The stories of four other women present uh, present Peter's water as a solitary remedy for the pains of childbirth, once again hearkening back to Peter's patronage of pa uh, pregnant women. Elsewhere, a young boy's tongue had swelled up to such an extent that bystanders feared they would choke or bite it off. A single drop of the martyr's water was, was enough to reduce the swelling. So... A fi the final miracle of this section proves this assertion. A woman named Everborga, thankful to Peter for preserving her firstborn by means of the water, kept the jar of it reserved in her house for any situation. Unfortunately, her house burnt to the ground. Instead of preserving the house from fire, the jar containing the water was found whole and entire amidst the ashes. A wondrous miracle performed by Peter's grace as Agni. But one may wonder... If ever Borgia would rather Peter had saved the house. <laughs> the rituals uh, retained their strength for many years until 1969. A rite endured in the Roman ritual for blessing water with Peter's relics. Uh, Campy wrote that the blessing of water with Peter's relics was an extremely early tradition and endured in Piacenza, at least until the 17th century. Yearly, the Dominicans would dip one of Peter's fingers into water on his feast and distribute the water along with palms and olive branches blessed in Peter's name. Until very recently, Dominican, Dominicans distributed palms and olive branches on his feast in the marches, especially around Cessna. There the people placed the palms in their fields and vineyards for protection, especially against storms. Two different rites of blessing for palms or olive branches also survived in later Dominican 
uh, rituals. One of them was included in the Roman ritual as well. The motive uh, of the palm of martyrdom probably played a role here, as did the Berengarian story of Peter cursing a Cathar field and blessing a Catholic one. In any case, information on the remote origins of these popular customs is uncertain. So you can see, like I said, I use the palms. I've used them for years. They work. Um, it's a beautiful thing to think about all the power of the sacramentals. This guy works. Uh, I've been doing everything I can to try to increase his his cult in a sense, you know, increase promotion. A lot of people don't don't know who he is. April 29th is his feast day. Um, like I said, check out uh, underneath show notes. I'll put the links to write-ups and the prayer blessings. I have seen churches to have St. Peter Martyr water blessed in buckets in the back. So next to, they had uh, St. Vincent Ferrer water and St. Peter Martyr water. Again, if you have a relic, please let me know. I would love to have one so I could do that with the, get the, you know, have it to give to other priests to do the water blessing. We have, I had a one priest do the blessing of the water. We just didn't have the relic. Sure, it still works. Might not be as powerful as the, with the relic, but it's worth giving it a shot. Here is his tomb. And from what I understand is now you have to pay to get into it. But it's at a height that if you touch your head to it because of headaches, you know, you got cut in the head. Uh, you rest your, if you have a headache, rest your head against the tomb and your headache goes away. But again, check out the show notes. I'll have the links for the prayers for the water, prayers for the palms, Dom Garanger's right up on uh, Peter of Verona. I'll finish with a novena prayer that is uh, St. Peter of Verona. By the way, he's martyred by Manichaean heretics. Uh, the victory was yours, O Peter, and your zeal for the defense of holy faith was rewarded. You ardently desire to shed your blood for the holiest of causes and by such a sacrifice to confirm the faithful of Christ and their religion. Our Lord satisfied your desire. He would even have your martyrdom be in the festive season of the resurrection of our divine Lamb, that his glory might add luster to the beauty of your holocaust. When the death blow fell upon your venerable head and your generous blood was flowing from the wounds, you did write on the ground the first words of the creed, for whose holy truth you were giving your life. Protector of the Christian people, what other motive have you in all your labors but charity? What else but a desire to offend the weak from danger induced you not only to preach against error, but to drive its teachers from the flock? How many simple souls who were receiving divine truth from the teaching of the church have been deceived by the lying sophistry of heretical doctrine and have lost the faith? Surely the church would do her utmost to ward off such dangers from her children. She would do all she could to defend them from enemies who were bent on destroying the glorious inheritance which had been handed down to them by millions of martyrs. She knew the strange tendency that often exists in the heart of fallen man to love error, whereas truth, though of itself unchanging, is not sure of its remaining firmly in the mind unless it be defended by learning or by faith. As to learning, there are but few who possess it, and as to faith, error is ever conspiring against and, of course, with the appearance of truth. In the Christian ages, it would have been deemed not only criminal, but absurd to grant to error the liberty which is due only to truth. And they that were in authority considered it a duty to keep the weak from danger, 
by removing from them all occasion of a fall. Just as the father of a family keeps his children from coming in contact with wicked companions who could easily impose on their experience and lead them to evil under the name of good. Obtain for us, O holy martyr, a keen appreciation of the precious gift of faith, that element which keeps us in the way of salvation. May we zealously do everything that lies in our power to preserve it, both in ourselves and in them that are under our care. The love of this holy faith has grown cold in so many hearts, and frequent intercourse with heretics or free thinkers has made them think and speak of matters of faith in a very loose way. Pray for them, O Peter, that they may recover that fearless love of the truths of religion, which should be one of the chief traits of the Christian character. If they be living in a country where the modern system is introduced of treating all religions alike, that is, of giving equal rights to error and to truth, let them be all the more courageous in professing the truth and detesting the errors opposed to the truth. Pray for us, O holy martyr, that there may be enkindled within us an ardent love of that faith, without which it is impossible to please God. Pray that we may become all earnestness in this duty, which is of vital importance to salvation, that thus our faith may daily gain strength within us. Till that length we shall merit to see in heaven what we have believed unhesitatingly on earth.